Well, Cherry Hills, sometimes it takes an outsider to come in to tell you how special your place is. And I'm going off script here um, for just a second. If you don't know that the presence of God is here, let me just tell you, you have a very special church. Very special. Um, I've been a lot of places across the globe, and I, um, I sense the love of Jesus in this room and people who delight in worshiping him. You are in a special place. You're in a special place also because two of my favorite people, uh, Gary Thomas has been a mentor to me through his books and his life in so many ways, and you um, have a jewel there. Uh, but Kurt Taylor... Um, there are people who can preach the word and they, are, they stand in a pulpit and they can preach and it's wonderful. But who they are behind the scenes is the real test of their character. And I remember watching uh, he and his family walk through the greatest trial that any, anyone would ever walk through in their lives. And I sense the Lord telling me on multiple occasions, if you wanna be like someone, you watch the humility and the grace in this man because he is the real deal. Your pastor is the real deal. Well, Psalm 107 says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. And as Kurt said, my name of my ministry is Redeem Life. And there's a photo that's gonna come up for a second. And it's just a snapshot of God's redemption um, I was 25 years old and I was in a bar doing what you do in bars, trying to look for love in all the wrong places and fill the emptiness of my soul. And because I had a praying mama, anyone have a praying mama? My praying mama brought this prodigal home to Jesus through some prayers on her face. Can I get a witness in this house? And because she was praying for me, I came to the end of myself, which let me tell you, if you are there, that is the grace of God on your life. Because when we come to the end of ourselves, that's when we can finally experience real life. And I was in a bar and I said the best prayer I ever said in my life and it was said this, God, if you're real, help. God loves the word help. And that answer came about a friend inviting me to church where I actually met Kurt later. And I was in the third balcony of that church where I first heard with ears that could hear the gospel that God came to rescue a girl like me who had gone so deep into sin that I could not get myself out. And I heard about Jesus and I ran to the front of that church when they had an invitation because I was desperate. And if you've been desperate, you know what I'm talking about. And Jesus redeemed my life, amen. Anybody else? So this picture of my family is a picture of the undeserved grace and goodness of God. Undeserved grace that he took my life out of the pit and he canceled the script that Satan had written for me and he poured out undeserved blessings upon my life. From 25 to 37, I lived as a single woman in Houston, Texas with many desires unmet, waiting upon the Lord. And at 37, God introduced me to the man that was, uh, who is my husband today. I'll tell you a little bit more about him later. And because he um, had gone through a divorce, overnight I became a, a stepmom. I call him my bonus boy. So if you're a stepmom in the house, I wanna say this Mother's Day is for you because you are doing the long haul and you're loving children 
and you were their mother. And it was a gift to me to become a stepmom. Was it easy? No, it was a gift. And then for the next five years, I struggled with what I called a little bit of infertility or a couple of miscarriages and thinking that it was too late and beyond hope. And then one day I diagnosed myself with mono and then a friend of mine said, I think you might be pregnant. And by God's grace and miracle, we have our daughter today. Her name is Sydney and she is in your wonderful childcare today. And I thought the goodness of God had been just, you know, reached its limit in my life. And then I flew here and then yesterday I experienced the Denver Biscuit Company. <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all. You, just, you might get tired of my accent, but for a minute, we got to go some Texas here. I thought the South had mastered the biscuit, but whoever these people are, whoever, God bless them. Because as we would say in the South, those are some slap your mama good biscuits. There is your endorsement. I will take my payment later if you own the place. But let's pray. Father God, I thank you, God, that your goodness and mercy does chase us down. And we thank you and bless the mothers. And your word says that we will rise up and call them blessed. We thank you for the mothers who prayed us home. We thank you for the mothers who have sacrificed. And God, we ask right now for your Holy Spirit, who we know is already here. God, would you be our teacher? Uh, Lord, my flesh profits nothing, but your spirit brings life. So Holy Spirit, breathe life into dead bones. Would you breathe life into our broken places? Would you breathe life into us, God, that we can exit out these doors, giving glory to the Most High God. And we say this in the name above every other name, the name of Jesus. Amen. So my husband and I have been married about three months and very much still in the giddy honeymoon stage. And I was invited to go speak um, at a women's conference retreat in the country of Honduras. And, you know, I'm always game. My bags are packed. I was excited to go. I knew nothing about what I was going into, so that helps. And um, a a missionary invited me. They were going to host me. And about the same time, our church in San Antonio, uh, the men of our church were going to Honduras to uh, do a mission trip as well. And they were going to be digging water wells up in the mountains. So different trips, but they were actually occurring at the same time. And so because I was going, Justin decided he was going to go on this men's trip, and we would both be there, although for different reasons. So it just so happened, because of the dates of the conference, that I had to arrive the day before him. So I get on the plane, I fly there, and this should have been my first warning. As we land the plane, every, everyone on the flight starts to applaud they start to cheer. They, they let out a, a yelp of, it was like worship and praise broke out. And I looked at the woman next to me. I said, what just happened? Why are we clapping? She said, did you not know? Did you not know? This is the most dangerous, the most dangerous airport in the world to land in. I was like, I had no idea. No one told me this. And she said, oh yeah, we're going in between two mountains and it's a really short runway. And if you don't make it, there you go. And so of course, everyone applauds when we actually make it. What else are we gonna do? So then my mind goes, my husband's flying in on this tomorrow. We just got married. 
what's going to happen to him. And so I, I fight a little bit, just a little bit of the, the fear, a little bit of the worry, a little bit of the anxiety. Okay, take a deep breath, take a deep breath. They're, they're probably trained pilots. It's going to be fine. So I get in the car with a missionary who's hosting me, and she begins the tour of her city. And the tour went something like this. Welcome to the murder capital of the world. And I went, what? She's like, oh yeah, this place is dark. This place was, all these murders, she drive by a street corner. Oh yeah, there was a gang murder here. Oh yeah, this person got killed. This missionary was murdered over here. Literally for 30 minutes, as she drives not very well through the streets of the city up to her jungle compound, all she did was tell me how awful it was. With the cherry on top being, you're fine. You're gonna be here, we have safety here, but white American men, oh no, they're not safe here. They're not safe. So many of them get kidnapped, held for hostage, if not murdered. By this point, with this information in my head, I have now internally go, gone to what I like to personally call the crazy place. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where every possible scenario, and I'm good at those things, every possible what if, what if, what if scenario is now going through my mind. And although on the outside, I'm trying to smile, put it together and like, isn't this place lovely and beautiful? On the inside, I am freaking out. So we pull into her compound, which has gates and it's beautiful and it's lush and there's vegetation everywhere and there's animals everywhere. You walk in her house and there, there are even these tropical birds and parrots in, living inside the house. And so my circumstances look like, oh, I'm okay, I'm living in paradise. But on the inside, I was in absolute turmoil. Because where have my thoughts gone? My thoughts have gone to the uttermost extreme of fear, the uttermost extreme of worry. And a friend once told me, you know what fear stands for? Fear is faith in the enemy. And in that moment, I had more confidence and faith in what the enemy could do to my marriage, my husband, my life, than I did in my God who I was there to serve. How ironic here I am to teach people about the word of God and I'm absolutely filled with fear. So as soon as I could, I excused myself, walked into my guest room and commenced to go into a full-blown meltdown. I am sobbing my eyes out. I flip over my phone. I FaceTime my husband and I said, you are not getting on that plane. And then I began to tell him all the reasons why from the scary airport landing to all of this, to the hostage situation he was for sure going to be in. And we went through it all. And he said, stop, stop. We have spiraled into a place that we do not need to go. And here's what we need to do. We need to stop and hope in God. Did God lead us here? Yes. Is he with us? Yes. Then let's pray for the God that we both believe in to guard and protect and to keep us where he is leading us. And so we did. And thankfully, all this stuff we read about in the Bible, it actually works. All this stuff we, we study and look at, it's not just to fill our minds with some theology. The, the radical truth of our faith is that we believe in a God who is near us. He's with us. And as we prayed to him and submitted our worries and cares to him, 
his supernatural peace that surpasses understanding flooded my heart and mind. And in that moment, I practiced what I want us to talk about this morning is shifting my soul from focusing on the what ifs and the worries and anxiety to telling my soul, preaching to my soul, hope in God, hope in God. Now the word hope is one that we throw around a lot. Hope in the world means wishful thinking. I hope I win the lottery or hope the Broncos do whatever we want the Broncos to do. That's not biblical hope. Here's what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of good. And this confident expectation of good produces in us two things, joy and peace, which don't make sense in our reality. But when we choose to talk to our souls and say, soul, hope in God, then what's produced is a confident expectation of good, which produces joy and peace. Now, the Bible is filled with examples of what this looks like. And one of my favorites that's really been a, a tool for me over the years comes from the prophet Jeremiah and really in the book of Lamentations. A little recap, Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, the prophet, who is going through not a fun season of life. And it's a time when it seems like everything has been dismantled and destroyed and what his eyes can see is bleak and dark. Jeremiah, um, the people of God are exiled in Babylon. They've been removed from the promised land because they have broken covenant. They have worshiped idols and because of their sin and they are there and he's heard news that Jerusalem has been destroyed. And so at that moment, it's easy to understand how he could go into despair, how he could go into a place where just give up and call it a day and immerse yourself in what would the Babylonians do? But he does something different. Look at Lamentations 3 with me. He says, I remember my affliction and my wondering. Okay, here's the thing. Hoping in God is not being the church lady and pretending like everything's cool. I remember my affliction and wondering, the bitterness and the gall. He's being real. He's being honest. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. I am in despair. I am suffering. My soul is depressed. Yet, everyone say with me the word yet. It's so powerful. This is reality. Yet, this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. See what it did there? All this may be true, but this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. Someone say amen to that. They are new every morning. And this is the key. Great is your faithfulness. So what did he do? Jeremiah chose to call to mind the Lord's love and faithfulness. In the midst of the bleakness... The city has been destroyed. The people of God are in captivity. But in the midst of this, I'm going to remember he is loving, he is good, and he is faithful. Faithful to what? He made a promise to Abraham. And that God who made the promise is the God who will keep his promise. And for us, that looks like in the bleak, in the hard, in the heavy. God, I don't understand this. 
God, my soul hates this, but I know, I know you are good. And I trust your goodness despite what my eyes can see. And there's been many seasons of life where in the hard, in the difficult, in the waiting, I've had to choose to do this because it is a choice of where we allow our soul and minds to go. And I call this process dropping an anchor in the midst of raging seas. When Justin and I went on our honeymoon, uh, we went to Rome and we were in the catacombs where the early Christians would come for worship and hide. And in those catacombs, you could see pictures and drawings of their faith. You would see a cross or a fish. But the one thing that I saw over and over again that astounded me was the picture of an anchor. Why? Because these believers were going through very difficult times and the anchor was a picture to them to plant their hope, put their hope in the faithfulness, the goodness, the power of God, and do not let the storm take them away. Now the word anchors, it's a noun for something, it's an object, but to anchor is a verb. And it means to fix or secure in a place. Think about your soul when you go through a trial. Think about your heart. Think about what happens to your joy and peace when you watch the 24-7 news cycle and it seems like the world is always coming to an end. When we drop the anchor in the goodness and the faithfulness of God, you know what happens? We don't drift off course. It keeps us from crashing against the rocks or being toppled over by whatever storm we might be in at the moment. But here's, here's what I want us to understand. It is a choice to drop the anchor. It is a choice to drop the anchor. Now, as a Bible teacher, I came to Jesus in desperation. And so for me, I don't want to just learn things in my head. I want to learn how to live things on the street because it's in the real world that I'm facing the temptations and the trials. So how do we hope in God? It's a cliche to me or a Christian, you know, Christianese for someone to say, well, just hope in God and I'll be good. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to do that. I want to know how to do that. You know, thankfully, we have a mentor. We have someone who teaches us how to do this, and his name is King David, who wrote many of the Psalms that we read and the Psalms that speak deeply to our souls. And here's what I love about King David. Before he was the worshiper who went out and killed Goliath, before he was the leader of God, I'm sorry, before he was the warrior who went out to kill Goliath, before he was the leader of God's people, he was first a worshiper. He was first a young boy who loved God and delighted in God's presence and just sang songs to him. And King David is so unique. Think about this. The Psalm we're about to read, he, he intentionally teaches the people of God how to hope in God. And he says, don't look to me for your security. Don't look to me for your protection. Don't look for, to me for provision. We're going to look to the Lord. Can you imagine today 
If our political leaders say, you know what? We're gonna lift our eyes up and we're gonna hope in the most high God. What a difference would we see in our world if that's the kind of leaders we had? You can clap at that, amen, because I think that would be great. But he teaches us through this Psalm to do exactly what Jeremiah did, to do exactly what Jeremiah did. So this Psalm, we're gonna break into three parts. And the first part starts with worship. And if this is the one thing you take out of this, let me tell you what happens when we start to worship. It will silence the room where we have an enemy who wants to still kill and destroy our joy and our peace. When we start to worship, it will silence the room. And we are told in scripture that we enter God's gates in his presence with thanksgiving and worship. And so what happens when we start to worship? It's like the passcode into God's presence. And you know what happens in God's presence? His peace, his peace. Let's look at what, um, how it starts. Psalm 33, verse one, King David says, shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. Sing to him a new song and play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So he's saying, okay, let's take our eyes, first of all, off of ourselves. That's, that's a win right there. Let's take our eyes off the raging seas. Let's take our eyes off the, the news channels. Let's take our eyes off and let's lift our eyes up and begin to praise God and something supernatural happens. It calibrates our souls to heaven's frequency. It is supernatural. And then he goes on. And then the next part of the Psalm, David teaches us to fix our eyes on who God is. And as A.W. Tozer said, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So instead of us thinking, my problem is bigger than God, this person is bigger than God, he's gonna remind us, oh, no, no, no. There's one who sits on the throne of heaven and he is not saying, oops, and he has no rival. Look at verse four. We're gonna look at about eight to 10 verses where all we see is the power, the goodness, and the faithfulness of God. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves justice and righteousness. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So King David, who spent most of his life out with sheep and staring up at the stars, he got this. He got, the God just spoke and these galaxies and orbits and all of this came into being. How great is our God? Verse seven, he gathers the waters of the sea into a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Oh, why? Verse nine, for he spoke and it came to be. Who but our God can speak and life comes into orbit? Who but our God speaks things into existence but him? He commands and it stood firm. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. 
Oh, the mighty think they are making plans, but there is no sovereign but the sovereign God. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands firm forever, and the plans of his heart from generation to generation. I don't know about you, but you know what happened to my soul as I, I, I read that? Is I am so thankful for our God who is so great, so powerful, so good, and so loving that we get to be called his children. And we get to rest in the fact that he is mighty and powerful and he has no rival and he is our strength. See what it does? Hope is not just some arbitrary emotion. No, hope is fixed. Hope is anchored, and it's anchored in this God. It's anchored in this God who fights our battles, this God who heals our diseases, this God who is our provider. It is not some mystical, out there, wishful thinking. It's anchored in the goodness of God. The next thing, say, uh, uh, next thing David tells us to do is after we've fixed our eyes on who he is, he wants us to recall and remember how faithful God is. One of my favorite expressions is this, is that God's past faithfulness is an indicator of his future performance. And that's what David is doing. He's like, now we're not just gonna fix our eyes on the character of God. Let's remember how he's shown off for us in the past. He says in verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That word Lord there is the covenant name for God. He's reminding the people of Israel, you were slaves in Egypt and God delivered you out of slavery and brought you into the promise and he made you his children. Your security is based on a covenant and a covenant that God made with us. And God says the same to us. He rescues us out from our sin and our slavery. And it's not based on anything we've done so we can't lose it. It's based on the blood of Jesus, amen? It's based on, based on the finished work of a good and faithful God who says, I'm gonna step in your place for you. Blessed is the one whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. What are we remembering? We're remembering one of the most fundamental truths of our faith. We don't worship doctrine and theology. We worship a living God who is with us. We worship the God who is not what the deist would say, who made it all and created it. He's far away watching us suffer. No, no, we, we worship the God who is carrying us. We worship the God who is near us. We worship the God who sees us, loves us, and knows us. That's our God. That's our God. And one of the most comforting aspects of this psalm to me is one of the little last words in there. David reminds us that he fashioned each of our hearts. I was walking through a very difficult season in my mid-30s, and that word left off the page to me because I was going through a season of have-nots, 
have not marriage, have not children, have not the happily ever after. And the ache and the pain was very, very deep. And the waiting on the Lord was difficult. And there's a message in the church that says, you know what? Just be content and put a smile on your face and act like you don't care. Well, I didn't, I didn't do that very well. And I realized after looking at this, and this is what the Lord used this psalm to teach me, I made your heart. Your longings are not something to apologize to me for. Your desires for things that I created and called good are not something to be embarrassed about, but there's something to entrust to me as your good, good father. So in that season, I learned to not pretend anymore that I didn't want these things, but I learned to instead entrust them to him because of his goodness and his faithfulness, which is why 1 Peter says this, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So one of the things that David wants us to know more than anything else is, yes, this is the living God who sees you, who knows you, who created your heart, and he he cares for you. But this last thing that David wants us to know about how to hope in God is really one of the most essential. David, he calls out the elephant in the room because a lot of times we, we love God, we, we worship God, but the reality is we've placed our hope in something other than the Lord. You know what I'm talking about? David calls this a false hope. Psalm 33 verse 16 says, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope, a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. So here's what the king of Israel does. He calls out what he calls false hopes. And that word in Hebrew, false hopes, it means it's something that's a lie or a scam or it's a deception. It's tempted us to put our hope in it when it will disappoint us. It will not satisfy and it will not anchor our souls. He talked about having a great army or a a big stallion. He's like, those things are fickle. Those things are not gonna give us security. Our hope has to be only in the living God. But what about us? What do we tempted to anchor our souls in? I don't know about you, but most often it's me. We're tempted to say, it's all up to me. We anchor our souls in the God of self. Or sometimes we think, if this person, if I had this person, or maybe this person is supposed to be my deliverer, my strength, or my provider, and we look to another person, and when that person disappoints us, or that person can't be Jesus, then we go into despair or we get angry, or we get bitter. Sometimes we put our hope in our physical health. Maybe we had a a friend or family member go through some kind of health crisis and we say, oh, it's not gonna happen to me. So we put our our hope in, I'm gonna have perfect nutrition. I'm gonna be at CrossFit three times a day. I'm gonna make sure nothing ever happens to me. And while taking care of our bodies and being good stewards is what we're supposed to do, we've shifted our hope 
and two, what we can manufacture in our own strength. Many people are told to hope in the government. Oh, if we can just elect the right person this time, then everything's gonna be all right, right? How's that worked for us so far? Are the 401k, are your employer, and the list can go on and on. Here's the reason David calls them false hopes. Because when our hope is on anything, anchored in anything, other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's gonna go up, it's gonna go down, and it's gonna rock back and forth, and we will not be anchored. We will experience despair, we will experience anger, we will experience everything because we are not anchored to the solid rock. But we know how now. We worship, we lift our eyes, we, we remember who he is. And then Psalm 33 closes with this incredible description. And it's a description, but it's also, what I love is the word, it's the disposition. It's the way the person who has chosen to hope in God, the way they move forward into the world. The way they move forward in the world that does have trouble. The way they move forward in the world that does have darkness. The way they move forward in the world where there are unknowns and there are what ifs. David describes it this way. He describes us this way. Verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who choose to hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad, we have joy in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast, Lord be upon, uh, steadfast love, O oh Lord, be upon us as we hope in you. So there's two takeaways I want us to see about the disposition of those who choose to hope in God. First of all, they have an audacious belief, audacious belief that they are the beloved child of God. An audacious belief that they are the beloved child of God. When I had what I call my miracle pregnancy at 43 and the doctors were throwing around terms like geriatric, it was real fun by the way, and I went through the nine months of carrying my daughter Sydney who's in your wonderful childcare right now. When we got to the hospital, um, I learned two powerful things that changed my life. The best word in the English language is this, Epidural, okay, amen, that's for free. The second thing I learned is how little I understood the gospel. How little I understood. After giving birth to my daughter, they, they placed her on my chest. And in a flat second, I realized my theology had been wrecked. Because here I am, a very sinful, selfish woman who doesn't know the first thing about parenting, but they have placed on me a love and a weight that I could not even comprehend and could not barely breathe under. And you're telling me 
that God the Father sees me like this. See, so many of us have come from a gospel of good behavior. If I'm good, God will love me. The gospel says when you were a hot mess wreck, he sent a son and died for you, and you are loved, period. And when we hope in God, here's how we enter life. We enter life with 1 John 4 just being the air we breathe. 1 John 4, 1 says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and thus we are. So we, we, we're hoping in God when we can walk through life and say, I don't understand this, but I know God is good. This is hard, but I know I am beloved by the Father and every good and perfect gift comes from him. And if anything is happening in my life, it's filtered through the very good and sovereign and loving hands of a God who loves me. The second thing that is true of us when we've anchored our souls in God is this. We get to experience his peace that surpasses all understanding, that peace that the Bible calls shalom. And I just want to ask your forgiveness in advance as I share probably what might be the most Texan illustration in the whole world of this situation, okay? Just bear with me for a second. Uh, so in that long season of singleness, where I, and there was a time that I, I went through a very dark night of the soul, and it was very tough. I went through some very deep heartbreak and had to walk very closely to God just to make it through that. And in that season, um, I would go home uh, for the holidays, and I um, have two wonderful parents. My mom is a saint, prayed seven kids into the kingdom. My dad is uh, John Wayne who loves Jesus. So he's a little rough, uh, but he's got your back. He is John Wayne, okay? And so I went home for Christmas one time, and this was kind of in the height of this painful season. And because my other brothers and sisters all have families of their own at the time, they on Christmas Eve would go spend time uh, with their families, and it would just be me and my mom and dad. The first time in my entire life with having seven brothers and sisters, it was just three of us. And so we formed this little tradition. We would, on Christmas Eve, watch the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. And so this one particular night, we're watching uh, the movie and my parents get tired and they're going to bed. And my dad says, be sure and lock up. Okay, sure will, gotcha. And so somewhere in the middle of the movie, I fall asleep on the couch. And I'm just having one of those great dreams and great restful sleeps. And then I wake up. And have you ever awakened and the hairs on the back of your head kind of stand up? And I knew immediately something was wrong. So I'm kind of facing this way where the television is and I fall I'm on, on the couch and I turn and I kind of pivot and over here is my, my mom's dining room, dining room with the doors that go to the outside. And I look over and the door is wide open and there are two burglars standing in my mom's dining room dressed head to toe in black. All they have are ski mask on and they've got bags. They are the Grinch here to steal Christmas. And have you ever been so afraid that you lose your oxygen? And I was so afraid I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. And I warned you, this is very Texan. And all I knew to do in that moment, okay, was I screamed at the top of my lungs, Daddy, get the gun! I mean, I'm telling you, every fiber in my being was calling on him, okay? So he 
comes out, he has been waiting for this moment his entire life. <laughs> his entire life. He comes out there and thankfully, the, the, the robbers had left and my dad came out and I won't tell you, you know, all that took place at that point, but someone was supposed to lock the door, you know. Um, the cops come, everything's fine, but now I'm in that state again. Panic, anxiety, worry, fear. And I'm sitting on the couch and I'm like, how am I supposed to rest now? How am I supposed to sleep now? And then I hear the sound of my dad. He's walking through the house. He's checking windows, checking doors, doing his thing. And then my dad comes and sits in his chair. Does your dad have a chair? My dad has a chair. It is not pretty. He sits in his chair. And he turns on gun smoke or something. It's not like that, you know what I'm saying? And as he sits down, I just fall asleep. And the next morning, I was replaying all the scenario of what happened, all of the what ifs, all of the, I can't believe this, all of that. And the Holy Spirit just grabbed me and reminded me, you know how quickly you fell asleep when your father sat down in his chair? And the Lord said to me, I sit on the throne of heaven. I have my eye upon you. Everything that concerns you has filtered through my good and loving hands. I love you and I am the living God who rules heaven and earth and I have no rival. And he goes, your peace and your rest are fixed and anchored in where I sit on the throne of heaven. So anchor it, girl. So anchor it, girl. Father God, I thank you that our hope is not just some cliche that Christians say that we have, but you are the living God who is with us. You're the living God who has us, who carries us, who is, who is for us. And God, I pray for every one of us that we would speak to our souls and remind our souls in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the heart, in the midst of the unmet, you are God. And you are on the throne of heaven, but greater still, you're our heavenly Father who loves us and calls us your own. And God, we delight in you and we rest in your goodness and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.